You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. Well, thank you, Agnes. And uh, let me pray as we uh, come to look at God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, your word is light and life. Shine its light in our hearts, we pray, so that we may live for the glory of Jesus. Amen. About 32 or so years ago, when I was the assistant minister here, I took a burial service at the cemetery in Cranbourne. Only two people were there. And they said to me that the person who was being buried, I think was the father of one of them, was a bad man. And they wanted to make sure he was dead and buried. It's not often at a funeral that somebody says that the person who's died was bad. In fact, at almost every funeral, people say how good the person was. It's as if only good people die, with that one exception. 32 or 33 years ago when I was the assistant minister here. Are people really bad or good? Does the line between good and bad divide people or not? Sometimes when there's catastrophes, uh, the pandemic, a flood, a fire, people say it's brought out the best in society. So in the pandemic, for example, people began to look out for their neighbours or care for them and that sort of thing. In a flood or fire, people open their homes, provide food, are generous But then on the other hand, we sometimes read of catastrophes where the people who are going out helping others find that when they get home, their house has been looted or their shop has been looted. And of course, in the pandemic, did it bring out our best or worst? After all, there was no toilet paper. (laughs) Greed came to the surface. Are people basically good or basically bad. The great Russian writer Solzhenitsyn said that the line between good and evil or good and bad does not divide people, go between people. It actually runs through each and every human heart. The same time we see nobility and virtue, generosity and uh, great goodness... We often at the same time see badness. How does God view humanity? In the reading we just heard, God's view is surprising perhaps, a bit shocking. Because God's view is this you were dead in your sins. Now, the Apostle Paul is not writing to people in prison. He's not writing to people who are under suspicion for terrorism or war or great acts of, of dastardly crime or something like that. He's writing to a church, a church that he founded. People who've been either Jewish or pagan in their backgrounds have come to place their faith in Christ. A bit like what we've seen uh, testified today. Paul would have baptized the first people at Ephesus, quite likely. 
and others baptized since. And yet he says, you were dead in your sins. There's no half measures there. Paul doesn't say, well, you're quite good, but... And he doesn't say, well, you were a bit bad, but... Politicians flatter us. Politicians will often say, I believe in the goodness of Australians or the goodness of Victorians, as though the people in South Australia are not good, something like that. But because they're just flattering us. God's not there to flatter us. You were dead in your sins. No half measures. A spiritual death, he's, of course, referring to. A death because of your failings and he's not referring to the occasional blip you know most of us at times will think oh I wish I hadn't have done that I wish I hadn't have said that I apologize for it I pray to God and repent of it but here he's referring to the way of life he says you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived that is practice generally following the course of this world That is, you belong to this world and the values of this world were your values. And you were dead because of them. Following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, that is the evil one, the spirit who is now at work among those who are disobedient, all of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. The desires of the flesh here is not simply sexual sin, though that would be part of it, but merely the the desires of fallen humanity. Lust, yes. Greed, yes. Anger, yes. Self-centeredness, yes. All those sorts of worldly desires. Paul is saying whether you came from a Jewish background, a pagan background, you've come to faith in Christ and what you were was simply part of the world. The values of our world. And we're aware that there are values in our world that seem to be good. And there are certainly values and practices in our world that are far from good. And the values of our world are always tempting us and challenging us to walk with them. To accept our world's values. And Paul is reminding the Ephesian Christians and us today that the world's values are not God's values, however much we practice them. Well, here we are 2,000 years after Paul wrote these words, roughly. Paul refers to the life of sexual immorality, for example, where people boasted in their affairs and their sexual promiscuity. Well, isn't it good that 2,000 years later we've moved on from that? Except we haven't. Because our society does the very same thing. It boasts in sexual promiscuity and adultery at times. Conversations around the the water water cooler thing at work on a Monday morning. I remember them from when I used to work in an office many years ago. Paul's world's values 2,000 years ago included the idolatry of physical beauty. If you go to some of the museums in Europe, you'll see the statues of the Greco-Roman gods, male and female, in all their splendid physical beauty. Well, how good that 2,000 years later we've moved on from that. Except we haven't. 
because we still idolise physical beauty. In the fashion world, in the pornographic world, in the film world, in the sporting world, and in the mirrors in gymnasiums. Paul's world was covetous, greedy, wanting gain and wealth and comfort and prosperity. Well, isn't it good that 2,000 years later we've moved on from that? Except we haven't. You think of all the gambling advertisements that confront us all the time. To gamble on sports games, to gamble on Tats Lotto, the lottery, or anything that moves, or maybe doesn't move. How it feeds greed, the desire for more and more. You see, in the end, nothing's changed in 2,000 years of the world's values. I've just picked out three basic ones. Paul's world then is our world today. And God says, if they're your values, you are dead in your sins and your trespasses. They are not the standards of God. And in God's eyes, humanity is not basically good. It's not totally evil, but it is dead. And not a pretty picture. How do we assess humanity? Well, goodness isn't, in a sense, the right assessment criterion. Because no one is perfectly good. And we're all dead in God's eyes. But thankfully that's not the end of this passage in Ephesians. Because actually the key verb and the key clause is in verse 4, God made us alive. You were dead, but God made us alive. That's the basic sentence. We heard 10 verses. Paul is fleshing out the detail in a long and, in its ancient Greek origin, complex sentence. But the basic sentence is, you were dead in your sins, in your trespasses, because you pursued the world's values, but God made you alive. God acts because, if you haven't noticed before, dead people can't do a thing. So God acts. And God made us alive. God reverses the situation of the first verses. The deadness of being in sin and trespass according to the world's values. Now here's a little quiz for you. If I was back here next week, I would check to see who has found the answer to this. But if uh, you've got time this week, let me challenge you to read the whole Bible. Yes, I know it's pretty big. From Genesis to Revelation. And find the reference to the most famous verse in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. Is it in the Old Testament? Or is it in the New Testament? Can you find it? Do you know the reference? Well, let me save you a lot of time, although it's not a bad thing to try and read the Bible through. It's not there. It's not there at all. It's not a biblical verse, and in fact, it's not a biblical truth. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps the helpless. God helps the dead. Because we cannot save ourselves we cannot be good enough to be saved by God 
and God helps the dead. You were dead, but God, and only God, made you alive or can make us alive. What happens in this passage is that what God does for us is in or through Christ. And so in verse 5, three times in verse 6, in verse 7, in verse 10, so that's a total of six times in just six verses, what God does in making us alive, saving us by grace, is in Christ or through Christ. And in the end of the passage just before this one, the end of chapter 1, Paul speaks about Christ who died and God made Christ alive. So what God has done for Christ, not because of Christ's sins, but because he died for our sins, God does for us in Christ and through Christ. And what he's saying, therefore, is that without Christ, there is no life, ultimately. Without Christ, there is no salvation. Without Christ, there is no forgiveness. Without Christ, there is no fellowship with God at all. Outside Christ... There is only, ultimately, death. And only in Christ is there life and salvation. And the God who makes us alive is a God who we're told is rich in mercy. Not reluctant in mercy, but rich, abounding in mercy, wanting to save people who cannot help themselves. Because dead people are a little bit stuck. How does Paul summarize all of this? He summarizes it in words that are famous and words that we've just sung, in effect. You are saved by grace. By grace you've been saved, he says in verse 5. By grace you've been saved through faith, he says later in verse 8. But what is this grace? We say grace before a meal, perhaps. But that's not what this, this is talking about. We think of grace as in the elegance of a ballet dancer or Usman Khawaja batting for Australia. How gracious and effortless his boundaries are. But we're not saved by elegance or beauty. This word grace is a challenging word because we use it in different contexts. But what it means here is we are saved by God's undeserved favor that is we do not deserve God's favor and yet God saves us it's almost parallel to the word mercy no one deserves mercy mercy by its nature is undeserved and those who've been baptized and confirmed today have testified that they are saved by grace that they're not saved because of any piety devotion or goodness in their lives, they're saved by grace through Christ. They don't deserve it. None of us deserves it. It is God's goodness, God's mercy, God's grace that saves us. An old hymn puts it this way, nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. See, we like to think that we can help ourselves and God will sort of top up the rest. You know, when you're bringing up children and you're letting them cook for the first time and they make a complete mess, but we say how well they do, but we actually do the rest of the job that they can't do. But salvation's not like that. Dead people can't do anything. God does it all from beginning to end. 
We're not saved because we contribute something that we bring our little bit and ask God to top it up. We're not saved because we've got a little bit of piety, a little bit of devotion, a little bit of faith, and God will sort of boost it. We're saved by grace, which means we don't deserve it, and we contribute nothing to it. That's pretty challenging for our world's values. Our world's values like to think that I can help myself. I'm pretty good. I'm able. I'm competent. I don't need your help, thank you. And God, I certainly don't need yours. That's our world's values. So it's quite confronting and challenging to become a Christian and to say, God, I'm helpless and hopeless. Only you can save me. And God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us in Christ, saves us by grace, which we accept through faith, a faith which itself is a gift. See, this is, this is pretty good news. It's, indeed, it's very good news. It's far better news than being told, God will help you if you help yourself. God helps the helpless, the spiritually helpless, those who are bound in their failing sins and trespasses. You may still be a good person in the eyes of society, but far from perfect in God's. And therefore dead. But Paul is saying what a wonderful God. He's not a God who turns a blind eye. He's not a God who pretends, oh, you're doing very well like a parent might with a child. It's a God who's realistic. But he saves us nonetheless through Jesus Christ. We can't do it. We'll never be able to do it. We'll never be able to contribute to it. But God does it all from beginning to end, because of Jesus Christ. So what then is the purpose of our life? The purpose of our life is to give glory to God, because he saves us. Oh yes, to live lives of good works in response to faith, but the purpose of our life is not to be good. The purpose of our life is to give honour and glory to God which again confronts our world's values because our world puts me at the centre. We are the most important people in the world according to the world's values. But in coming to faith, becoming a Christian, in recognising the goodness and mercy and grace of God, there's nothing we can claim for our own fame or honour in becoming a Christian but it's the honour and glory of Jesus Christ. It may be that some of you have never thought about God or never thought about faith. But do not be foolish and do not be ignorant. The great God is thoroughly merciful and good. And he'll help you though you are helpless and hopeless. And Jesus has died for you, though you do not deserve it, nor do we, nor does any of us. And he invites you to say, God, help me because I'm helpless. Save me by mercy and grace. Thank you for Jesus. Amen.